Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host this is the james altucher show today on the james altucher show guy you're about to listen to is known by the FBI as Tipper X. He blew open so many insider trading cases on Wall Street. It's just fascinating to hear his story. So here he is. So Tom Harden, otherwise known as Tipper X, and we'll get to that in a second. I remember back in 2007, you were involved in probably what was then the biggest insider trading case ever. I mean, it was so big, I couldn't even believe it was happening. I mean, arguably Ivan Boski in like 1987 was bigger, but but this was bigger financially wise. Uh, since then, you've been involved in, I don't know, 100 or 50 insider trading cases. You've worked with the FBI, but you started off as a tipper. Right. Later an informant for the FBI, but before then, like an insider trading tipper. I got tips from another investor, traded past the month so in the tipping chain and so so okay let's start from the beginning yeah, yeah yeah you're working in the financial industry like you grew up where'd you grow up yeah so i grew up in gwinnett county uh people don't know it. it's right outside of atlanta uh father there was a coca-cola man his whole career uh mother stayed at home with myself my two brothers a middle-class family in north georgia applied to upenn got in somehow um and so i was the first of my family to attend ivy league school wharton undergrad and then started working in the hedge fund business in 2000 and so, I mean, back in 2000s when I started getting involved in the hedge fund business, but I went a different route. Like you went the traditional route, which I think is much smarter. I tried to just from scratch with no experience, start a hedge fund. 
And yeah. I think the traditional route is, you know, school slash business school slash PhD in physics or work for a Goldman Sachs or work for a smaller hedge fund that becomes a bigger hedge fund. And that smaller hedge fund, the guy should have worked at either Goldman Sachs or a larger hedge fund. Like you, there's sort of like a pedigree that you have to get to have a really large hedge fund. And that and that's what I realized when I was raising money is that I didn't, I couldn't say, oh yeah, I worked at Goldman Sachs. Then I worked at, you know, a tiger fund and then blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So you, you took the traditional route and it's a way to essentially retire early with hundreds of millions of dollars, at least back then. I don't know if it's the same case now, but so, so what was the first hedge fund you worked for? It was a tech-focused hedge fund in Greenwich, Connecticut, about seven hundred and fifty uh, million in assets, close to a billion, which at the time was actually quite, quite big. Now it's not as big. Um, so at yeah, the time, no, I was working for tech-focused fund. My boss was ex Morgan Stanley, so like you said, he ran the fund there. Um, you know, he's thirty-two years old. He crushed it nineteen ninety-nine, as they all did, and so he hired me January two thousand. You know, months before the top of the tech bubble, and then you fell apart like everyone else did. Yeah. And and then what happened? Yeah, so 2001, 2002, you know, I'm covering tech. I'm 23, 24 years old. Uh, a lot of trips to Silicon Valley, trips to Asia. I'm covering like semiconductors, so you know, the foundries are in Asia. And but James, pretty early, I, I've noticed uh, that certain funds were kind of blatantly trading on, I'll call material non-public information, so inside information. Uh, How were, did you notice that? Uh, people would be at conferences talking about actually sticking their chest out, talking about context they had, like a like a Taiwan semiconductor. If you could get the wafer starts uh, every month about their customers, you know, the Xilinxes, the Alteras, those types of companies. You could, you know, trade those stocks perfectly on the quarter or people knew about other takeovers happening. People would just talk about it kind of out there in the open. Um, but then there was certain hedge funds hiring analysts from tech companies to be their analysts so they could call back and get the numbers, that type of thing. So this was really uh, happening kind of start of the century. Um, I knew what was going on. Uh, I never felt at that point in my career I need to be part of that group. I was already doing quite well. After my first fund, I worked at a, I got hired to be a junior partner um, at, a, at a fund seated by uh, a very well-known um, value manager that anybody would know in the industry. So a really great seat in my career, but I knew what was going on. Can you say who it was? Uh, so yeah, we were actually seated by Tiger Management. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you were in a, at a Tiger fund. A seat. Uh, yeah. But let me ask you a question. Like, oh, you know, so obviously back in the tech, age and not obvious, but what you were just saying is that some hedge funds or some money managers knew in advance what the earnings would be or what companies were getting acquired. And, but, but they, but they knew it sort of like, you know, cause it was just, it was being talked about at conferences and how much was yeah. gray area and how much was like, Hey, tell me, you know, in a back alley, I'll give you some money and yeah. you give me some inside information. Um, a lot of it was gray, but then there was also, like you said, like sort of like, you know, the famous book, black edge, like the black edge, like actually hey, I have the numbers for so-and-so. Like my first boss in Greenwich, we had an investor, a limited partner who was a CEO of a tech company. They would literally talk like every quarter, the day the quarter is coming out, here's what it's going to be. Like literally that's blatant insider trading, but I didn't, I didn't really even think about it, James, at the time. I felt like, well, everybody's doing this. Like there was a guy who just got out of prison a few months ago who wrote a book, uh, Raj Rajaratnam. Like he was out there, you know, talking about sort of contacts and that type of thing he had at these companies and his People, I, I suspected were doing this. Um, of course, he was later charged, but I didn't really think, oh my God, this is illegal. Like all these guys are doing this is illegal. I thought this is kind of just how it, how it goes kind of in tech where it's faster money. The 13 Fs, um, you know, turned over a lot around events, quarters, that type of thing, takeovers. So I knew what was going on, but I never felt I would ever be part of that because I didn't have those connections inside those companies, inside these companies giving me any information uh, until, you know, until it happened in my career.
I just want to understand like what would be gray area? Like it seems like if you call an analyst and say, Hey, I'm hearing the numbers at Altera is going to be really good because uh Apple's launching a new Macintosh that yeah. uses their chips or whatever. Like it seems like is that inside information or do they just know a lot about the industry and people at Altera confirmed, yeah, we're probably selling something to Apple or Intel or whatever. And, and then you figured, oh, okay, yeah, the numbers are going to be good and we'll buy now. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's not, you know, illegal inside information. It was more like, um, but that's the common conversation you'd have. You call up an analyst. Yeah. I'm hearing Altera is going to have a great quarter. They got this new customer or, you know, my analyst in Taiwan is saying that they've, you know, that their activity has picked up a little bit. So it's not, it's not specific information. It's not like here's the exact numbers, but it's at least you're trafficking, you know, in, in a gray area. Now understand the law a little bit better. Like it's, it could be easy to kind of tip over and say, okay, now I, now I have this information. Now I actually have the numbers, which has been illegal, but it's easy to go over that line, but not really tell yourself. It's easy to rationalize. Like, well, if everybody else is doing this, then, you know, this, this must be okay. What's the first time you actually saw like blatant, like you thought to yourself, ah, this is definitely, I don't want to be involved in this, this is definitely illegal inside information. Yeah. So there was a, um, a guy I knew that every quarter he would trade three or four stocks perfectly. I suspected he must be getting inside information about the quarter. And so he one day, uh, before, uh, my illegal tip said, you know, would you like to know about this or that? Uh, you could trade this. And even at that time, James, I had had some training in my career to know that was illegal. And so I felt like, no, that's not what I do. But eventually I became desensitized to that. And eventually I was ready uh, to cross the line um, in my career. But at that point, um, I was turning it down. But at, at some point, uh, I went the other way. And, and what, was, what was the tipping point, literally? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yes. Um, so at my second hedge fund, we had a down first quarter in our first month of existence, which really shouldn't have mattered. Our, our, you know, we had investors with a three to five year horizon. We were investing thematically. Like what the trade that would have made my career that never happened was long Google, short yellow pages. If you remember, there was like several yellow page companies that were publicly traded. Yeah. And that would have been a career making trade. Long Google, short yellow pages, go to the beach. Um, so we had yeah. these thematic trades on. We lost money in the first quarter. Uh, my boss came into my office, closed the door and said, Tom, I know we're investing thematically, but honestly, we're, you know, as you know, we're a small hedge fund. If we don't start putting up monthly numbers, uh, our people are, you know, they're going to pull money. We're not going to be able to raise. And so kind of like the ambiguity in his message to do what it takes to meet shorter term goals definitely set the stage in some part, I think, for my future decision making. And James, like a few months later, I got a call from another analyst that I knew who had, who had worked for Roger Rotnam. And she said, you know, Tom, you've made me a lot of money over the last few years on some great ideas. Like I would give her my best idea every year. And she's like, I have something for you. And James, she said, a Moody's analyst at the bond rating agency who was roommates with her cousin told her a company, Kronos, was going to be acquired next week, this date, this price, by this private equity firm. Like, I've never gotten a call in my career like that before, so I knew. What was her incentive to call you with that? Like, did she, did she want, was she really just doing quote unquote, a favor or did, did, did she want more ideas from you later or yeah. So like, what was that, or did she just, was there some psychological thing? She just wanted to show you she had good stuff too. I think it was a favor. Like a lot of these situations, it's like a gift to a friend. So I think that's how it started. But later the FBI, we'll get to later would ask me, what was your, why would she do that? And I think they were, they thought that she was grooming me. Uh, she was 20 years older than me, I think. And so they thought maybe she thought in my career, I would be able to be reciprocate this information in the future. Um, so she told me this I was see. happening. And I didn't make any trades on it at that point. Like I had had the training, like, okay, this, this sounds like 
so in that movie Wall Street where it's like blue horseshoe type of jargon, like this is happening next week. But James, later that day, I was talking to a friend at another firm who worked at a prop trading firm. And he was down that month, we were talking. He's like, dude, are you hearing anything out there I could put a short-term trade on? And kind of as a throwaway comment, I said, I got this weird call from this woman this morning saying this Moody's analyst told her this company, Kronos, is going to be acquired next week. And just pausing right there, like anybody listening that's familiar with this would know now I could be charged with insider trading just for tipping the information. And I haven't traded yet. So you, so even though you've made no money and he's made no money and you weren't paid for this information, just saying the information that could cause someone to make money in the stock market, that's enough to get a charge for insider trading. At least civilly, if I'm tipping, I said, you know, here's the date, here's the price, here's the private equity company. Like, that's enough where I could be charged at least by the SEC, which has a lower burden of proof than the Department of Justice. And could you go to jail for that? Uh, usually not civilly, no. Um, usually it has to be criminal. I mean, it's possible, but really the SEC would be more civil if you're just, if you're tipping them in PI and not trading. Uh, but it would have been in my career anyways, even if it's just a civil charge, you know, not the criminal charge. Right. Like they could, they could basically take your career away somehow. They could say you're not allowed to yeah, if, trade in securities again. Right. If it was just SEC versus Thomas Harden, this, this person tipped this information, you know, as you know, you can't careers over. And if you made some money, they can maybe make you return it. Disgorge it. Yeah. Yeah. And so this guy tells everybody at his firm, Hey, this is happening in a few weeks. They load up. He calls me back and he's like, Tom, did you buy some? And as the junior partner, so imagine my two-person firm, it was just me and my boss. As the junior analyst, I could initiate a stock position in our portfolio and not have to talk to my boss as long as it was less than 1% of the assets that we managed. And I bought a 0.9% position in the portfolio in Kronos. And I totally just rationalized it. I felt like if these other guys are making millions of dollars doing it, these conferences are talking about it, there's no way I would ever be caught trading so small. Um, I felt like I wasn't hurting anybody just buying the stock before everybody else. Um, you know, I've now committed securities fraud by buying this stock, but I still thought I was a great guy, like doing a moral weight in my head. Like, you know, I volunteer at my church. I do all this stuff. I could, I could buy this stock and still feel like I was a great guy. Um, I felt I would just do it well, just, just well, once. Also there's, there's huge, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but there's huge financial incentives. Yes. Like, so you could argue I'm going to make money and do well for my family and, and then there's there's the kind of philosophical issues about insider trading, which we could get to in a little bit. But let's just talk about what those financial incentives are. You were at a, a what you called a billion dollar fund, and it was just you and one other guy. I didn't realize that. So you a billion. Oh, we were hundred million. My second was a hundred million. So my first fund was a billion, where I was an analyst. The second fund was a hundred million dollar fund, which still for two people is could turn out to something great. Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the financial aspects of that. A hedge fund for people who don't know, if hedge fund charges let's say, and I'm assuming yours did, uh, what's called a two and 20. So 2% of all fees per year. So on a hundred million dollar fund, the two partners basically just get $2 million to, to, to split up and you have no real excess costs. Back in 2000, you didn't have to hire like, you know, a risk right. management officer and all sorts of back office. It was just the two of you guys. So it's 2 million just upfront, no matter how you do, even if you're down 80%, you get that 2 million and then you get 20% of the profit. So if you make 20% that year, the hundred million turns into 120, $20 million in profits, you would get 20% of that. So another 4 million. So altogether, 6 million in profits between you and just one other guy. And that 20 returning 20% in 1999 would not have been unusual. And, and 2000, your expectations were, or 2001, your expectations were probably similar. So, so you're, you're looking, and he was the senior partner, you were the junior partner, but if you guys did well, you would, a, you would raise money, go from a hundred million to a billion, no problem. Cause you both had 
good pedigrees and, and you have good a good track record. And B, if you just return 20%, the firm makes six million, maybe you would make a million and a half of that. And you're a young guy. How old were you then? Uh so by this so the trade actually happened in two thousand seven. So I was uh, 28 years old. So yeah, like 28 still grew up in, (laughs) you know, your dad worked for Coca-Cola all his life. And, um, so there's huge financial incentive to, Hey, do like one or two good trades. And, and then you probably are also rationalizing and thinking, well, how can they catch me? A, even if they call me and say, why did you make this trade? You can say, Oh, I heard this was just a great company. I like the company. I did great research. You probably did your research and, and, and this is a good company. And I didn't know they were getting acquired. Well, this one woman says that you knew. And I'm like, I talked to her, but she didn't say anything about acquisition. I mean, she would have had to have recorded it and basically prove you were lying. And it's your word against hers. And it, probably you wouldn't have thought she was recording it for whatever reason. So like, how would they have caught you even in that case? Yeah, no, exactly. Like, um, I, I felt, yeah, I would never get caught. And I felt, I never, I never even considered the amount of money I was making. So on the, on the less than 1% position, um, you know, it was really, I didn't think about, oh, I'm going to make a bunch of money. I just felt like, well, I'm now a part of this end group. Like these guys that are doing it, um, I wasn't a part of that group. And now that she called me with this tip and I'm making this trade, uh, I kind of felt, I hate to say it, like a sense of like puffery. Like now I could stick my chest out, go to the conferences the next week and say, hey, I knew about this deal happening. I might know about other deals. And like they would put their arms around me and say, okay, now you're part of our group. Uh, what else do you know? And so I think that sense of just wanting to be, to be a part of that group that I wasn't, definitely played uh, a part in some of the, my, my psychology with this trade. And yeah, I never considered ever being caught, as you said, like if they weren't catching the big guys, they would never look at me um, and felt like I would always be able to like cover my tracks, have a cover story. Like you said, maybe I'd find an analyst report saying this company was cheap and that's why I bought it. So I always felt like I could get myself out of this if I was ever asked about it. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say 
the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the, the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I've written a lot about this and I've read the SEC cases on insider trading. The typical case is actually not a very large case. Like you said, one of the things is, oh, we were small, but maybe back then you were small relative to other people doing it. But I would say the typical case is somebody who has a consistent set of behavior on like small companies. So maybe someone who's like the dentist of a lawyer gets like tips about small companies being acquired, but consistently like he, they're a dental assistant and they consistently seem to buy like options the day before acquisitions yeah. on like 10 in a row. And then that raises a red flag at the sec, like just doing it once probably doesn't even put you on a list of like questionable, you know, transactions. You're just doing it once. They don't know. You'd have to show up like repeatedly for them to look at you. It's, it's not like there's a million people at the sec. So, so I think uh, on, on, how do you think she found her information? So I think she was, she was talking to, um, one of her cousins was the roommate of a Moody's analyst. So the Moody's analyst, I would later learn as a side hustle was selling this information to her. And so she was paying this guy for this information, trading it, and then gave it to me as a gift. So this happened four times. So it wasn't, if I had just stopped on that one trade, it probably maybe not would have been caught, but it happened three more times, like the tips from her, the small trades, the 0.9% positions. My boss always looking the other way. So again, him not asking me questions, I kind of felt like, well, this is okay. Again, he's about 20 years older than I am. He's the closest thing I had to a mentor. He's not calling me out on these well-timed trades. By the third trade, James, she actually asked me for a cash payoff for her source of information. And she's like, Tom, can you write this guy a check? Like he knows who you are. This is the third one I'm giving you. So she was kind of setting me up to get to, to pay her source. I totally freaked out. Yeah, on that, I would almost think she's trying to trap me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought, holy holy shit, like, she's like, can you write this guy a check? And of course, I'm like, well, that's illegal. There's no way I would do that. Are you crazy? And so uh, the guys that I was tipping with the tips, I asked them, can you pass the hat around? And literally, one of them came and gave me an envelope of $15,000 in a FedEx envelope. I'm going through uh, LaGuardia Airport to meet her. I'm going to a conference that week in California where she lives. I'm going to give this to her. I actually going through TSA at that time, I put all the cash bills on my body to walk through the scanner. It didn't set the scanner off. I went into the restroom, put it in my carry-on. As my flight was called to board, there was actually two TSA agents at the gate of my flight, randomly stopping passengers and searching their carry-ons. And so when they got to my group, obviously I was trying not to make eye contact and I was actually stopped by one of the TSA agents. He took my bag, he flipped through it, 
he looked at the other TSA agent and he looked at me and he said, sir, have a nice flight. So he gave me my bag back. So I would say, good old TSA. <laughs> I went and sat in the seat of my plane. <laughs> and, and I'm not trying to help anybody commit a crime here, but if someone found that kind of cash in my bag, I would just say, yeah, I'm going to Las Vegas after this trip and needed some cash for gambling. Yeah, yeah, that was going to be my excuse. I'm going to go because I was going to San Francisco, so I'm going to go to Vegas after that. And actually, in one of my presentations last year, um, somebody in the audience said it's actually only illegal to do that. So legally, you can carry it across. And their compliance officer was like, "Well, how do you know that?" So, <laughs> so wait, yeah. so it's it's when is it illegal to carry cash? So you know, on the customs form, do you have over ten thousand dollars internationally? You have to declare it, or you know, you have to have some reason for it. But domestically, I was told that you could carry you know whatever you wanted through the airport. Yeah. I mean, like I legitimately would go to Las Vegas and play poker yeah. around then. And I didn't know if my ATM card would be able to take out $10,000. So I would go with that kind of cash in right. my bag. So, uh, but I could, I could see why you were nervous about it, but it seems to me once you're kind of conspiring to do payoffs, that feels very illegal. Like exactly, as opposed exactly. to like people telling like, Hey, I heard something from a Moody's analyst. Like then you could argue, Oh, it's gray area. I didn't know if she was serious or not. Like no matter how much they know, you could just say, Oh yeah. People talk about acquisitions all the time. Half of them happen. Half of them don't. I did my own research. I, there was risk in, definitely in doing this. So blah, blah, blah. Like, like the essence of the law is you have to take risk. And so if you could basically right. describe how you took risk, then it's not illegal. And you could say you didn't know it, but when you're actually paying for information, that strikes me as over the line. Exactly. And that's where the criminal element comes in. So the SEC is the civil and Department of Justice, FBI is the criminal. And so once you're, you know, once you're doing something like that, like cash payoffs, you're totally, um, you know, you're not just answering the phone. Maybe this is vague, like you're actually all in. So it's sort of like the frog in boiling water where the frog, uh, you know, you put it in cold water and turn it up slowly and the frog boils to death. Like it's that slippery sort of incremental approach to this where by the third trade, I'm going through the airport with cash in my body didn't start there, but got there eventually when I was all in, you know, on this, on this conspiracy. Let me ask you a question. Could you have said, Hey, I'm not involved. I don't want to be involved in this. And then you just start, you're trying to cultivate your own sources. Like you could have been friends with the Moody's guy and taken him out drinking, or you could have, you know, I don't know, cliche, but gone through the garbage can at, you know, different companies right. and, and tried to find stuff. Like, I think if one is act actively looking for inside information, my guess is it's possible to find it. I don't know. Yeah, I could have told her, you know, when she said, Tom, write this guy a check, I could have said, that's, I would never do that. And by the way, I got to stop doing this with you because this is like, this, you know, this feels totally illegal. But I felt because she told me he knew who I was, I just that's wasn't scary. thinking at all. I thought, oh my God, this guy knows who I am. He knows. And so I just freaked out, got this money together. Not once did I actually just push pause and think like, what the heck am I doing? Is this Moody's analyst going to go to the FBI and say I didn't pay him a bribe? You know, not, not thinking clearly at all. And my, my, her doing this sounds very suspicious to me. Like either she's trying to trap you or like you said later earlier, she's trying to, to groom you. So she's trying to get you in like, Hey, you're a part of this. Now you can't run away. Like it seems like otherwise, cause initially it sounded like she's just being quote unquote a friend or like, Hey, you did this for me. I'm going to do this for you. Um, but now it sounds like there's something suspicious in what, in what she, in her behavior. Did you ever find out for sure why she, she suddenly started bringing you closer in like that and, and engaging you in the illegal activity? I would learn later that she didn't really talk to many people. Um, she knew, you know, she talked to Raj Rajaratnam. She talked to, so she was paid by a hedge fund in New York for, to get information for them. And like, she would talk to me, like when I saw her at conferences, nobody, nobody really liked her. She was a very abrasive personality. So I think one of my character flaws maybe was I always like to bring people in 
uh, that were sort of discarded, like just to talk to people. And so I think she was really happy that I would even talk to her. So that's why we, uh, you know, stayed engaged, I think. And like she would live in Silicon Valley. I lived in New York. So she would go on every bus tour, visit every company, get the latest and greatest on what management teams were saying because, you know, management teams say one thing one week, one thing the other week, the stock can move on that. So she would sort of be my eyes and ears in Silicon Valley. And and by the way, like some inside information is good and some's useless. Like let's let's say someone said, oh, we're gonna we're gonna beat earnings estimates. They could beat earnings estimates and the stock will fall 20% right. that day. Like right. so they so the, I don't know even what's considered inside information because some things do involve like heavy amounts of risk, even if you know it. But um, but we'll, there's a whole philosophical case on either side of insider trading, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but, um, okay. So now you're actually, not only are you paying, but you're talking to the people you're giving information to and asking for money to help pay this woman. So did any of them freak out or were they were like, oh yeah, of course, here you go, Tom. Yeah. They all, they just passed the hat around as I would learn, um, put the money together, gave it to me and then I went out and gave it to her. So. Uh, they you could scared, have also though, told that a lot of people were saying your name then involving in, in sentences involving insider trading? <laughs> yeah, no, I should have been. I should have been more alert. I mean, nobody nobody was arrested yet up to this point. So this was all happening before any discussions with the FBI or anything like that. But um, uh, I was told, so the guys that actually gave me the cash told me that they knew other people were engaging this type of behavior with cash payoffs resources. So I was able to rationalize, well, this is like a normal normal course of doing business, which of course it wasn't. But this reminds me also of like the and we don't have to describe what this is, but the whole mutual fund timing scandal, literally everybody was doing it, but then literally everybody suffered because it was all illegal. So like right, the, right. the argument, like everyone's doing it just means everyone's going to go to jail. So the other thing that was interesting to me and what you were saying, uh, the boss looking the other way or boss looking yeah. the other way. It, it struck me that maybe he looked the other way because he probably wondered like, why is this guy in so many trades that a week later get acquired? And then he probably figured, listen, as long as I don't know anything, yeah. it's good for me. And I'm going to specifically look away and never ask him about it. And so if the yeah. guy ever asked me, well, did you ask me? I, I don't even know. He had discretion. I don't even know what trades he made. Like, you know, I was just focused on my own trades. I think that's what it was. Like if he could quote be an ostrich and put his head in the sand and say, sort of keep up your short-term trading there, Tom, but don't tell me how you're doing it. He was never charged, so maybe it worked out for him at the end of the day by not asking me the questions. So, um, you know, in my talks today, I always tell senior people, you have to ask the junior person questions. You have to ask about short-term performance. You can't just say, you know, keep it up, you know, and not ask the question. So, but he, for me, not even firing me, okay, the first trade was a takeover. Like, how did I know about that? I should have been fired. So I kind of felt he was okay with it. He asked me for the short-term performance. We have to start making money every month. And so I kind of felt, all right, he's fine with this. I'm fine with this. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I mean, you, like you mentioned, these were investors that had three-year time horizons, but there's still a lot of pressure to make money every single month. Yes. And, you know, so many hedge funds blow up or do unethical activity because if if they're not up every single month, investors get concerned. They have a hard time raising money. Like, why? How did you... You know, you know, the dream was to make one percent a month, and then you know the the saying was, if you can make one percent a month, you'll raise billion, you'll raise a trillion dollars. Um, even though twelve percent a year didn't really seem like a big number for hedge funds back in two thousand or early two thousands, because some hedge funds were making so much more. But you have Madoff is the classic example where he made a percent a month. He was, you know, and I say this being Jewish, he was called the Jewish T bill um, because it's like twelve percent a year, steady, never a down month. I used to invest in these things called pipe funds and they had a tendency to make a percent a month. And 
it's just all bad. Like whenever you see someone making a solid 1% a month, that's just yeah. bad news. <laughs> yeah, no, it's never good. <laughs> so, so, okay. So, so what's next? So you start, you're, you're at the smaller fund, you you start making, you know, these trades. Now you're getting more and more involved and what's next. So it was four trades over the course of 2007. She would call me, I would place the 0.9% position, only one cash payoff the, uh, for the third one. So after the fourth one, it just sort of stopped coming from her. Um, I suspect maybe she was approached by the FBI or the SEC or something asked about her trades, but um, she, so that was September, 2007 was the fourth trade, uh, all 0.9% positions. What I personally made as the junior partner, in other words, what did I throw my career away for at the end of the day? My personal take as the junior partner was $46,000 on these trades. And to your point, when it's often small amounts that they, that they get you on, it was $46,000, uh, basically the price of professional suicide, you know, at 29 years old at that point. Um, and then fast forward to July of 2008, I'm living at 55th and uh, Broadway, going to drop off my dry cleaning before getting a cab to work, stepped on the sidewalk and this guy behind me said, are you Tom? And I turned around, it was two FBI agents with the wallets out, dark suits, FBI come sit down with us. We went and sat down. There's a Wendy's at 55th and 8th. We sat down there and he's like, look, man, we know about your four trades. We know that you were just down in Atlanta visiting your baby nephew Carter for his baptism two days ago. And I was, and my head was spinning. And the first thought James with the FBI in my face was, oh my God, you know, my dad's going to kill me. <laughs> What's he going to say? I'm still young. All he could talk about was my success when he finds out about this. Uh, it's not going to be good. I thought, oh my God, my wife's going to find out. I had just gotten married. She had no idea I was doing this. And then, then I thought, oh my God, this might impact my career. Oh my God, I might be going to prison. But it went from dad to prison. And I immediately started making implicating statements. Yes, I made those four trades. In fact, you won't believe this. At one point, she asked me for $15,000. I'm going through LaGuardia. And the FBI is like, go on, go on. <laughs> so I kept talking to them. And he said, I want to stop you there, Tom. He said, do you know of illicit trading? going on in the industry. And as we were talking about it, I said, yeah, it's quite rampant. Um, he pulled out this web of names of these insider trading tipping charts that people have seen them. It's like circles and arrows. Um, he had two big targets at the top. I couldn't see the names that the FBI had widened the names out to me, but he had two big targets. So I assume one of those guys was probably Roger Rotnam. Um, he folded this up. He gave me his card. He said, Tom, you have the opportunity to help us build some of these cases. It's going to help you out. I took his card and said, should I talk to an attorney first? Uh, and the FBI said, we'll let you know when you can do that. So, wow. So, so a couple of things there. One is, you know, there's, a, there's, what, there's Miranda rights where they say everything you say and do can be held against you. They never say, and this is very important to realize, no one realizes, they never say everything, anything, some things you say and do can actually help you. They never say that because nothing you can do can help you. You can only hurt yourself. There is no way to actually help yourself in these first conversations you have, That's, which is why you always need a lawyer, particularly when you, yeah. whether or not you even did something guilty or innocent, like it could, cause things, even if you're innocent, things you could say can only hurt you. So, and they don't know, they just they need someone in jail. So, uh, uh, so you obviously didn't think about that cause you were scared and you thought that helping them would help you, which maybe it did. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's often a fishing expedition. Like, we don't even know what Tom knew, if, if he knew anything, but he traded these four stocks, just like these other people who had information. Let's go scare the shit out of this guy, dropping off his dry cleaning, see if he talks. And it is a real case where there could be somebody who did not do anything with inside information, trade a stock, and another fund had the inside information, trade the stock at the same time. The FBI runs around Midtown and like 
you know, scares everybody to see who's talking. So to your point, I could have actually not been guilty and still been approached by the FBI because of well-timed trades. If I start running my mouth and not saying, hey, I'll take your card and have counsel call you, you know, I could be in trouble. Yeah, no, and I know people who actually were approached who really were uh, innocent of trades. They just happened to, they used actually quantitative systems to see when there was like buying pressure in the options. They would basically use quant to figure out where insider trading was occurring. And so their trades would match insider trading. But um, so you said they had this chart and the chart was kind of all the funds that they thought were doing insider trading? Yeah, that's right. They had, I, I, they were all whited out to me. So it was just a bunch of circles and arrows leading up to two, two big circles at the top. So I kind of surmised maybe there's two big fish they're going after. Uh, probably, you know, Roger Rotten, I was just guessing at that time. And so, yeah, so I could see that there was like at least um, probably a hundred names on this piece of paper. It was massive. I mean, back from, from the, from the years of 1999 to 2007, 2008, when your specific case and Raj's case, Galleon, came out, uh, uh, I would say I even saw, from my limited perspective, a huge amount of insider trading. Like it was just everywhere. I didn't do. I didn't have. I didn't do anything that wasn't my type of fund. But uh, I knew just so much stuff. Like it was just insane. What happened next? <laughs> so yeah. So uh, the FBI says, well, you know, we could talk to an attorney. So I took his card. Um, I went to the office that day, so it was July of 2008. We're getting crushed, you know, financial crisis. Uh, so I'm totally white. I don't think my partner like was suspect suspected me of anything because again, we were not doing well. So I said, "Sorry, I'm late." Um, that afternoon, um, so I'm Catholic. I went to St. Patrick's for a confession, uh, the first time in a long time. I, I married a Catholic, so I became Catholic for marriage. Talked to a priest. I had to talk to somebody. I was like, not. I don't think I was suicidal, but I was in a very dark place. Uh, talked to a priest. Uh, I don't know who I talked to, but. Talked to him for a long time. He was like, probably thinking, why do I have to get this guy <laughs> telling the story? And he said, he said, Tom, it sounds like 99% of your life, you've, you've lived the right way. 1% of your life, you really screwed up, but you can't let this 1% define what you're thinking about doing to yourself, that type of thing. If the FBI is giving you a chance, Tom, to help them out, you should help them out. So I left St. Patrick's, called the FBI and said, what does it even mean to help you? I'm not even sure. What are you talking about? Help you build cases. And the FBI is like, and I hadn't talked to an attorney. The FBI said, you know what you're going to have to do for us? Or they said, you know what you're going to have to do for your country is wear what's called a body wire. What is a body wire um, as opposed to just wire? <laughs> yeah, so body wire, um, you know, there's, there's pictures of people with something taped to their chest. It doesn't look like that. At that time in 2008, it was about an inch or two big. So back then when we all carry Blackberries around, it was about the size of a battery for a Blackberry. It would fit in my front dress shirt pocket. And the FBI basically said, who do you think would be of interest to us? And so... I made a list of who I felt were the worst actors in the industry, but not really like peers, maybe like a 48-year-old hedge fund manager. I'm a 29-year-old analyst. But people I knew like reputationally uh, were always having well-timed trades or would talk about it. So at the conferences that I'd attend, I'd build closer relationships with these guys, sort of playing up to their egos. Hey, I knew about these four trades last year. I might be getting more. How do you do it? And eventually people would start talking to me about how they got inside information while I'm wearing the wire. I was very bad, though, with these conversations because if I'm asking you about a well-timed trade you made a few years ago, you might look at me like, I don't know this kid that well, and he's all of a sudden asking me about this trade. They would often say nothing, and then I would get nervous and like fill the silence in, and the FBI would play it back later and say, Tom, you're not doing a good job. You have to let the person talk. And of course, I'm like, this is my first time ever doing this. I mean, I've never done something like this before, but eventually I got good about letting the other person talk, playing up to their ego, and getting them to talk to me about 
what they would say is a cover story for any illicit trade that they did. That way, the FBI had that, and I guess that implied then they had intent uh, to break the law. So, but, you know, I would think to myself, if I'm the FBI, I would say, let's give Tom some information and, and you know, entrap people. First off, you can entrap people, but second off, it shows that you're legit and people then start opening up to you to, to get more information. So they start giving you their information. So A, they'd be trading on your tips, which may or may not be, you know, there, there's a gray area there when the FBI, if the FBI is feeding you the information, but then later they might return the favor and then that would certainly be illegal. So did the FBI consider giving you real information or, or allowing you to continue getting information and paying for it? They didn't approach it that way. I think, you, like you said, it's a very gray area. Like if they're actually having me record the crime being, another crime being committed, but that's for purposes of cooperation. It wasn't like that. It was just me saying, hey, I had these four trades. Hey, I have this Moody's analyst who might have something for me in the future. I'd be happy to share with you. Um, how do you do it? How do you get these sources like these types of people? Eventually, people would start talking to me. So for, for two years, I was just running around undercover, uh, working um, at my hedge fund still in 2008 and doing like a double life as an FBI informant in the industry. In 2009, I left my firm and I kept working for the FBI undercover. Well, why did you leave your firm? Uh, basically, my performance was terrible in 2008, like, like many people. And so I told my boss, and I, I couldn't handle being an informant and working. And so I, I kind of felt my name would be leaked to the press any day too. So I didn't want to be working. So I just told my boss, hey, 2008, I'm leaving the industry. This is not for me anymore. But I continued to work with the FBI uh, undercover um, in 2009. If, if you didn't have a hedge fund though, how did people, like the, again, I keep thinking of like soap opera style FBI, like they could have set you up with a billion dollar hedge fund and then you would have like right. totally been over the whole industry. Like, but I guess they didn't consider stuff like that. No, they didn't. And so when I was out of work, I was just uh, going in for job interviews or networking and say, hey, I'm trying to get back to another seat. Um, this is how I get information. This has happened to me on four times, four trades last year. I'll probably be able to get more information. So that was under the the context of those conversations, just like meeting people at Starbucks who I thought were would be interesting to the FBI. You would tell people at Starbucks like, hey, uh, I get information. Sometimes they give me a call with real takeover information. Like, would you, you would admit to these people in a job interview? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was talking about. Or, or just networking with people of interest. Like, could you help me out if you know that any seats are opening up in the industry? Like, this is what I've been able to do. And so people would eventually start talking to me about how they got information. Um, one guy, James, who I got in like 15 conversations that year, he would always say nothing. He would change the subject. He lived in Greenwich. I still lived in Manhattan. He called me one Sunday afternoon and he's like, Tom, we need to have dinner tonight. We need to talk. And so I called the FBI. I said, this guy you want wants to have dinner with me tonight on a Sunday. They got excited. They met me at Grand Central train station, gave me the wire. I took the train out to Greenwich. This guy picked me up at the train station and he said, Tom, good to see you. I brought swim trunks for you. We're going swimming at my mother's house. So this is out in Greenwich. The Sopranos was popular that summer. So all these ideas are going through my head. Um, I played a cool guy to his car. I was like, all right, yeah, let's go swimming. I was used to wearing the wire. I was kind of nervous though, because he's on to me. We go into this old mansion in Greenwich. He starts disrobing in this room. So he wants to see if something with like taped to my chest, like a wire like that. It was in my front dress shirt pocket. I excused myself, went to the restroom took the wire out, put it in my jeans, and then took my jeans off and put these swim trunks on so the wire now is in this bedroom. So it's the two of us in our swim trunks walking out to this pool. 
it was so quiet. I saw like a shovel against the house, a hole in the ground. I thought, oh my God, is this guy going to try to kill me or something? And he was just having some landscaping done and we got in a swimming pool. Was he like a, a huge hedge fund manager or was he like an employee at a hedge fund? Oh, he, he was a pretty big guy, uh, like a pretty big, well-known uh, name. I guess at that like time. Like a billionaire hedge fund manager. Yeah, maybe not that level, but like centillionaire. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so uh, we got in the swimming pool and he grabs a tennis ball and we're playing this awkward game of catch. He's pouring it on psychologically. And after a few minutes of freaking me out, he said, Tom, you've been acting kind of weird the last few months in our conversations. He said he spoke to an attorney and I have to answer his question truthfully. And at this point, I was going to give up my cover. I'm not a good swimmer. I'm in this guy's pool. What's going to happen next? I'm freaking out. He said, Tom, have you been approached by the SEC? And truthfully, I could say, no, not, not the SEC. Um, he didn't catch that nuance. Um, so he starts making implicating statements about all these questions I'd asked him about because he felt more comfortable not seeing a wire on me in the swimming pool. He was actually never charged by the FBI because they didn't get that conversation recorded. Um, so he was actually never charged. He was one of the worst actors I felt in the industry and they never got him, I think, because I didn't record that conversation. How do you know he was one of the worst actors? Like, cause you, it sounds like you hadn't given him any information yourself. Just reputationally, I would ask, uh, I would ask other people, you know, who, whose business model is MNPI or material non-public information trading. And I got this guy's name over and over again. So I knew him sort of peripherally through these conferences and built a closer relationship. I mean, if I were him, right, there was probably staff at the house while you guys were in the pool, I would have had someone yeah. go through your, all your clothes and bags and whatever and photograph everything that was in your pockets because then he would have figured it out right away. Yeah. If people are really paranoid and they're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars, why don't they do this intelligently? And again, I'm not advocating anything. Like it's clearly illegal. It's bad behavior. It took advantage of lots of people. But I just wonder why people are so arrogant. They think they can get away with this stuff. So when he, when he, yeah, no. it, does, it's, it, does, it only requires a little bit of intelligence. We're just riffing here on a call and, and, and he would have gotten you then. Like if he had, yeah, he would, he would have totally, but he felt because it wasn't taped to my chest, I guess I, I passed his test of what I was doing, but yeah, anybody could have gone through my jeans and found it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Like a 1950s technology wire. He did not find on you. <laughs> so, right. And he thought he got me with the sec question. And so sometimes the sec, uh, does the case before the FBI and it, with my situation, it was just the FBI was on me before the sec. So I could truthfully say, haven't talked to the sec. Um, but it didn't say anything more than that. So yeah. <laughs> And, um, but did, how did that conversation end? Did he want information or he was just like, Hey, I just wanted to check you out. We'll call you later. He's like, I just, you know, I wanted to check you out and then, you know, we'll, let's stay in touch. But, uh, no, sorry. I put you under this, this pressure, but I had to check you out to make sure you weren't wearing a wire. Basically. Now, if I he were didn't, you, didn't go through the jeans, I would ask for a job. <laughs> like, Hey, you could say, Hey, I'm totally legit. Can I have a job? You brought me out to your mom's house. <laughs> like what's, what's going on? Why'd you do this? So like, I would have pushed back a little bit. Yeah, no, I was, I was just ready to get out of the pool, get back home. Yeah. So it's just like, have a weekend in this situation quickly. So Galleon was this huge hedge fund. People don't know that it was like multi-billion dollar hedge fund focused on stock picking. And I say that because some hedge funds don't, you have many ways. There's many ways to invest in stocks. Stock picking usually requires getting good information and doing some analysis legit and investing in stocks. So Galleon was a good tech hedge fund that did stock picking and supposedly had great analysts. Like what was your involvement with them? And they were multi-billion. They were one of the biggest hedge funds at the time. Yeah, no, I knew, I knew people there that were, that were later charged. And so, um, but didn't, didn't know like personally, uh, the head guy or anything like that. Like I was just a lowly 
analysts, but knew of those people, knew that they were, you know, working with the FBI or, or targets of the FBI. Um, and so the first arrests were October 2009. If you remember that day, there was like 30 people in handcuffs in the industry. Yeah. I remember the photo, famous photograph of Raj uh, handcuffed and, and walking away, the purple. Yeah, exactly. So at, le at least 20 people were arrested that day. Um, all those criminal indictments were unsealed or the SEC enforcements were unsealed. So Roger Adam was arrested. Like 20 guys were in handcuffs. Um, some of the guys at SAC were arrested. Um, and so in the, in, the, in the Wall Street Journal, the only name that wasn't revealed was called Tipper X. And I was reading this for a few minutes. They didn't tell me I was Tipper X. And then I quickly figured out, I told my wife, I think I'm Tipper X. And CNBC ran a story, who is Tipper X? Uh, they didn't mention me. They mentioned people who I'm sure were very upset to be mentioned with this. So at this point, I'm 30. I'm still working with the uh, FBI undercover. I'm still actively helping them build these cases. How are you making a living? So I wasn't really doing, I got a, um, I got a little bit of a payout from the, the hedge fund I could float off of. And thank God my wife had a job. So I wasn't, we weren't single income household. So she was able to hold down the fort and pay the bills. Um, and what was her but, response when you first told her that you were involved in all these things? Yeah, great question. I was only allowed to tell her. I couldn't tell my parents or anybody else except for her. The FBI, so back in July 2008, approached me on a Tuesday morning. I waited till Friday after work to tell her after I talked to the priest and told the FBI I would cooperate. So Friday after work, young couple in New York City, you know, how was your week? Glass of wine. I'm like, you know, let me go first. I have, I have something I have to tell you. And she had been working at Lehman the whole time. So she had all the stories up to this point. And I sat her down and said, you won't believe this, but Tuesday, the FBI approached me on the street, confronted me about some insider trading, helping, asked me to help them. And she was like, the way she took it, um, she's like, go, wait, say that again. I think she was preparing to hear something about like, I'm leaving her or something, but I told her that again. And she said, oh my God, like, this is, out, this is insane, but you didn't do anything to hurt me. And you're going to figure out a way to get us out of this. 85% of marriages would end right there. I mean, really? usually the wife married the hedge fund guy. And so I found a stat where if, if a spouse commits a felony after marriage, 85% of marriages ended. Um, it wasn't easy, but she, she stayed with me. So thank God, at least I had some support in my life um, going through this. But most wives would have jetted. I mean, I wouldn't have blamed her. We just got married. We had no kids. Like there was nothing to tie her down. Well, let me ask you, like, what if she had left right then? And let's say you're like, you know, screw this. I'm just... Getting at. Like, what if you just like left New York, moved to Kansas City, worked at a grocery store? Like, would the FBI have found you and put you in jail from there, or like, what would they? What would have happened? You think? Yeah, if she had said, you know, I'm out of here, and I'm like, oh, screw the FBI, I'm going to go somewhere else. I mean, they would have found me, and at least I would probably not have cooperated, and I would have been charged and went to prison for a few years for the four trades I did. Wow. And so, so thank God she she was on your side, and and she was seeing her own stuff at Lehman Brothers, I'm sure, at the exact same time. Yeah. So like it was just yeah. a few months later that Lehman Brothers blew up, was destroyed. That's right. It was like a, uh, the month before all the arrests happened. So 2008, uh, we say now if we made it through 2008, we could probably make it through anything. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's crazy. So, yeah. so, so, okay, so you weren't making a living during this time in 2009, right. but you were still providing tips and all this kind of stuff. Um, were the tips, like how were you, like what was the sample where you gave a tip that was useful? Um, so I would just, I would just sit down. So I wasn't actually giving stock tips, but just in terms of like who the FBI should approach. Um, I would, I would sit down again, talk to somebody of interest from the FBI, uh, that was on their list and then get that person into a conversation about one time. Uh, maybe there's a, there's a stock that they traded well every quarter where I suspected they were getting illegal information, eventually get them to talk about how they were getting that information. It was somebody inside the company that they knew. They would say just enough where the FBI would play it back and say, okay, Tom, your work's here done. We're going to approach this person at some point later. And the FBI would always tell me, 
they're not going to know it was me. I'm not sure how they navigated that because I was wearing, I wore a wire so many times that year. Um, and so finally, um, well into my cooperation, the FBI told me to talk to a lawyer. And you can imagine how this went. Like I, I Googled insider trading lawyers, Martha Stewart lawyers. That's, that's all I knew about insider trading was Martha Stewart. I called a guy in New York and he's like, well, how many, who was your attorney before me? You've been working with the FBI for a long time. I said, I've never worked, I've never spoken to an attorney. He said, Tom, you're supposed to call me again the first day the FBI approached you. I said, you know what? It's my first time doing this. So it's just pretty, pretty straightforward for me. And so I had to plead guilty December 2009 uh, with the FBI, um, with my attorney now. And then my name came out to the press in January 2010. Uh, the FBI asked me to wear a wire against two good friends, which I refused to do. And the FBI said, okay, tomorrow your name's coming out. So January 2010, the headlines are still out there. Like Tipper X is Tom Harden. So now I realized that anybody in the industry that knew me at all in any professional capacity was like, holy shit. Um, you know, most people were, doing, were, were playing on the right side of the law, but we're like, oh my God, I talked to Tom once, once a year about, like if we had met at a conference and talked once or twice a year, all the compliance officers would take all these names from these cases and put them through the email at their companies and say, hey, analyst, why the hell do you know this guy, Tom? And of course they were like, I know Tom from Penn or I know, know him from the industry. So this idea of who am I hurting uh, starts to unravel. Like anybody that knew me at all, I was a total pariah at that point. And I've only heard secondhand that the worst day of some people's careers was having to say, oh my God, this guy, Tipper X, Tom Harden, I know this guy, we talk occasionally. So I was definitely like, all my LinkedIn connections were basically gone. Facebook, you know, a lot of people cut ties, which I understand, but. Um, but why would, why would people in 2009 or even late 2008, why would people talk to you given that you weren't involved in the industry anymore? Like why would people tell you, how did you get people to basically admit to doing illegal behavior. Yeah, so by so 2008, I was still working. 2009, I wasn't. But, you know, I'd meet with people under the auspices that we're networking and getting a coffee. And I'm still looking for a job if they know of anybody who would be interested in hiring somebody like me who can get this inside information. And so that was the, the, the meetings I would have. And so they would just take the meeting, maybe a friend, mutual acquaintance set us up. So that was under the, the pretext of those meetings when I was out of work. I see. So you're basically talking to other maybe young people, like probably not the top hedge funds managers, right. but other young people who were kind of in the network, uh, right. so to speak. And, and so you're saying, Hey, I'm trying to get a job. would love to have a coffee. Um, we've worked together before, blah, blah, blah. And then you would just meet. And then in the course of things, I can imagine each trying to one up each other. I get information this way. Well, no, I get yeah. information this way. Right. And so you were able, and you probably just got better. Yes. Like, what do you think you got better at in terms of like getting information from people? Uh, getting people to talk, just sitting there. And if it's 30 seconds of silence after I ask the question, just sitting there with silence. Um, I wasn't ever comfortable with silence. Like after a few seconds in the conversation, it, it could feel awkward to a lot of people and you start filling the silence with whatever changed the subject. But once I got comfortable sitting in silence with people, eventually people would start talking. I always felt they must feel, I'm, they must know I'm wearing a wire. So I thought in my mind, they must think it's like huge on my chest. But um, eventually people would start talking because they would get uncomfortable with the silence. But I had to be, um, just sitting there and waiting and letting them, letting them talk really. And how did other people rationalize insider trading to you? You know, I think a lot of people, it was being part of the group, being part of the quote in group. And so if, they, if it was younger people, um, they would say sort of like me, now I'm part of this in group, uh, sticking their chest out. It was more like a, not so much about the money they were making, but more about the context they had. That was more that, that bravado of sticking your chest out. Here's my network. Um, for older people, you know, there was some people whose entire fun was just insider trading. And so I think that's, I don't know, maybe that's more psychopathy or like that's, that's another 
rationalization, but I think most people felt like, well, everybody's, everybody's doing this. Um, you know, some of these funds, the 13Fs, you could see them turning over literally with new positions before takeovers in 2006, 2007. So you kind of felt like this was the normal course of doing business for some of these firms. Yeah. And did you, like you mentioned, you didn't want to um, wear a wire with two when they approached you about two of your friends. Uh, but did you ever feel bad about, even though they're all doing illegal activity and, you know, we could argue all day about the ethics of it. The reality is it was illegal. Did you ever feel bad though? Um, kind of snitching? You were a snitch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. And then sort of organized crime, I would be, be the snitch. And I would, you know, I would fear for my safety, obviously, even talking about this today. But uh, at the time, I felt I was bringing the FBI people who were doing this like as their business. And so how did I rationalize this? Like working with the FBI, I kind of felt that I was bringing bad, bad people. And so once it got to these two friends who... I would have had to just take down because of something I gave them. Um, I drew the line there. The FBI was not happy, uh, but eventually that day they're like, all right, your name's coming out tomorrow. You, you've done all you can for us. You're, we're done with you. And so they didn't really give me any time. Even though you helped them with, yeah. you helped them with 40 cases on, and you basically made four trades that made you $46,000. Like they just didn't give you any credit at all for what you did eventually at my sentencing so i was sentenced years later to no prison and the fbi wrote a great letter for me about my cooperation but when i drew the line at those two friends i didn't have any time to prep anybody else in my life for what was about to happen it happened overnight um and so i flew my parents up from georgia um they were going to come visit my first daughter their first granddaughter told them individually just awful conversations to have to have because all they could talk about my success you know in gwinnett county this kid grew up here, went to Wharton, went to this hedge fund. I mean, they don't even know what a hedge fund is. They could just talk about my success and have to tell them was absolutely awful. Um, so, and have to tell the people in my life, like I had two brothers, two younger brothers. Uh, it was a very difficult conversation because people feel like, wait, you're doing this the whole time. Like, I don't even know you, Tom. Like you have this double life. You did these trades. Like you're telling me this now. And I, I couldn't tell them other than my wife until my name became public. So I'm trying to do it as fast as I can. But the amount of uh, damage I caused there, uh, you know, I guess it's not surprising, but that was a, it was a heavy time. And, and how did you, um, you know, after your name came out, were you worried about your safety then? Like maybe the Rajas of the world, not Raj specifically, but I'm just any other hedge fund managers. Anybody, were you worried anybody was going to try to find you and hurt you? Um, I, I, I should have been, but I wasn't really worried about that. The FBI always told me that they assessed the threat level of every target I was in front of, which I don't know if that was, they were just saying that, but, uh, they were giving me that comfort. So it never really crossed my mind, like, oh my God, now I, I'd better get witness protection or, you know, or something like that. Like, because um, more, more informant names were, were coming out through the course of that year. I just happened to be called Tipper X and like the biggest, built the most cases for the FBI, but I didn't really fear for my safety. Did you have to testify for any of the cases that you built? It was weird. They never called me to testify. I was always one off. Um, so I, I think I was getting people who then they would approach, who then would get the big people. Uh, or the big trials. And so I was never, I was prepped a few times to testify, but never got called to testify. So let me ask you some questions that are kind of like the gray area. So in the case of Galleon, which was the, the biggest one that I, that I know of at that time, uh, their claim was they would put together these like expert panels and they would pay people legit. Like there were companies that put together the expert panels. Galleon would hire these companies. Hey, I needed an expert panel on the semiconductor industry. And there would be employees from the semiconductor industry on these panels. And they supposedly would just pay for these panels to tell them things. And it was like a real gray area. That was their case, at least. There was a really gray yeah. area, whether that was inside information or not. 
Yeah, so the, the mosaic theory, uh, which is what they talked about, where you get all these little pieces of information and put it together and make a decision. Um, so that was common, like expert networks. Uh, we used them at the time at my firm. Um, I felt they were totally above board. I mean, but to the FBI, it was weird. Like, why would you pay this guy $1,000 an hour unless he's like giving you inside information? And there were, there were a few expert network people charged, but at the time uh, when I used them, it, it was fine. So that's, I guess, a gray area, but really where it goes from illegal is it has to be material information it has to be non-public. And the weird third stipulation is there has to be a breach of duty. Like somebody, like an insider has breached their duty or breached their uh, fiduciary duty to their company in sharing this information. So there's not an actual statute for insider trading. Uh, the former prosecutor, Preparara, is starting to, is trying to put something together like a task force to actually make a statute for insider trading. So it's all prosecuted as securities fraud, which securities fraud covers Ponzi schemes. It's really a big umbrella but there's not actually a specific statute yet. So it's kind of like judge-made law where they can bring a case, they can expand the law a bit, which they did under Preparara. And some of those cases pre-brought were actually tossed afterwards because they expanded it uh, too far. So that's kind of the nuances of the law. So like, like for instance, you didn't breach uh, responsibility, like someone who, someone who started the information leak breached. Does there have to be a breach along the way or does each person have to breach? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And some of the cases that were tossed were like, the fifth or sixth guy down the chain answering the phone, getting getting the tip, those cases were tossed because how would they know that there was a breach or where was it coming from? But because I had the cash payoffs, because it happened four times, and I, I suspected she was getting this information from the Moody's analyst, like my, the legal term is like think mens rea, like my, my level of knowing about this was enough to trigger criminal liability. I see. So, but that's a little bit of a gray area. Like, was it or wasn't it? Oh, like, yeah. So, um, yeah. like your lawyer, maybe, if you had called your lawyer day one, Maybe it would have been different. Who knows? Um, but or if you had said initially, listen, I appreciate what you guys are doing. I understand what you're asking. Let's talk tomorrow. I obviously have to call a lawyer first. Maybe they would have stopped there for all you know. Yeah, that's my advice when I speak to hedge funds today. I'm like, if the FBI ever were to approach you, and it, it could happen, take their card, talk to an attorney. Um, and so I, I never had any plans to even talk about this. So I was sentenced in 2015 to no prison because of my cooperation, but still a convicted felon. In 2016, um, one, of the, one of the FBI agents heard me, um, my first time I ever told this story was on Rich Roll's podcast, uh, 2015. Oh, Rich Roll, good friend of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Rich had me on. Um, I was sentenced. In my sentencing, an AP reporter wrote up my life story, like I was now a vegan ultra runner. So Rich's um, producer saw that in 2015, had me on, very raw conversation. I was just sentenced. An FBI agent heard me on Rich Roll and in 2016, he called me and invited me to speak at the FBI about my situation, being very young, the pressures, the short-term rationalization, only 46,000. And the FBI gave me the idea back then to go out and share my story as a way to switch up compliance training with hedge funds. Um, so the last six years now, I've turned it into like a sort of lemonade at the lemons type of situation. I go into a firm, hey, I sat in your seat, here's how it happened, here's how it could happen today. And so that kind of got me started speaking at the FBI. So they took me down, but then they gave me the idea to go out and speak about this so and how how like is it so so i can imagine you could be a, a good speaker for a conferences in general because it's a good story and and it's inspirational you've come back from it and turned your life around and so on and you and you held things together and where how do you hold things together under bad situ stressful situations like this uh you you could give advice to hedge funds how do you avoid this you give advice to law firms what's the actual law here because it's very right. very gray and and there's one thing being a lawyer there's other thing having experience at a very deep level with the law which you know law firms sometimes are are they're good to acknowledge that 
lawyers don't always know all the information about the law, that people who experience the law probably know it more. And so you, you could build like a, a good business, like a thing, have things been going well? Yeah, it's been going really well. Uh, the first few years I got, you know, COVID wasn't great to be a professional speaker, so yeah. I had to do everything over Zoom. But this year, a big bounce back year, it's really engaging to be out with people in crowds again at the conferences and uh, to be able to tell the story. But I know it's the kind of thing, if I had heard this when I was 25, it probably wouldn't be my story. So that the FBI gave me this chance to sort of have redemption from this has been great. And to your point, I think these self-inflicted events in life can like def define us forever, destroy people. I mean, there were several suicides in these cases, or it can oh develop gosh. you into something else. And so now I'm 44. I look at back at myself at 28 and 29. There's, if there's one thing I could tell myself back then is like, I think I was drowning in insecurity based on what the other guys in the industry were doing. And I wasn't part of that group where I should have just been focused on myself, like improving as an investor or self-improvement, improving as a pattern recognition person and not worried about what these other guys were doing. But I look back at myself, 28-year-old Tom was just drowning in insecurity about what these other guys were doing and not a part of that group. When she calls me, this is happening. Now I'm a part of that group. I just wish I understood my psychology better and had more self-awareness in my 20s. So I have plenty of advice for myself in my 20s, but that's something today that I tell people, especially, you know, I'll speak to these investment banks with these new people coming out of college and business school. They have no idea what they don't know. Like they're in their 20s now and like I'll say galleon or whatever. They're like, what the heck is that? You know, it's time moves on. So it's sort of, but the lessons remain the same. Let me let me ask a, a a different question now though. Do you think and and by the way I'm not like let's just make it clear. Insider trading is illegal. It's illegal to do it. Don't get involved. Anyone listening to this, don't get involved. But do you think it should be illegal? And it, on the when I say that, the first gut reaction must be of course because all these rich people are taking advantage of the people who don't know any information and they're making more money. That's how the rich are getting richer is through illegal activity. I'm just going to present the flip side, and then I'm curious about your thoughts. The flip side is the market benefits the more information is in the market. So for instance, let's right. say everybody knew, let's say insider information was legal and some law firm leaked that, um, you know, this company is getting bought by this company. And so now you would see, because it's legal, you would see the price in the stock market reflect these acquisition talks. So the, instead of in one day, it goes from 10 to 20 because it's being the company's being acquired at 20 it would slowly or maybe quickly move uh, you know, 10, 11, 12, up to 20. So the, the, the actual price of the stock would more clearly reflect its value because more information was in there. And it's up to the law firm to plug their leaks. Like it's, a, it's not yeah. you know, society's fault. So, so what do you think is, where, where do you stand on this? Yeah, no, there's, there's been pretty, um, plenty of academic white papers about why it shouldn't be illegal, to your point. We should have all the information in the market. Um, I think there's a few countries in the world where it's not illegal. Um, so... I think we need to have, so we need to have the statute, like actually what is it? The ambiguity around this law has existed forever and the SEC loves that because, you know, you can bring a case and you may, you may not win that case, but you can just bring a case and maybe redefine the law or as, as uh, Preparar did when he was um, the prosecutor in New York City for the, for the federal prosecutor, like expanding the law because it's, it's a judge-made law. I think we really do have to have a statute and define what it is so people know what it is, what it isn't, what they can do, if they're in a gray area or not. But I think the system, the way it's set up, they love this ambiguity, that they love that it's judge made. They love that they can get somebody do the perp walks and all that. And maybe that that person actually wins their case, but you've destroyed reputations. And unfortunately the pendulum swings. I think some years they're focused on this like they were with my case. And the last couple of years, they haven't been really focused on it. 
Um, I was speaking to a professor, a statistics professor, who says suspicious trading now, and the data he tracks is at an all-time high. Like you'll see the Friday options activity and the Monday takeovers. That's like happening now at all-time highs. There right. hasn't been a whole lot of cases brought right now, but I think it's sort of political will about should we bring these cases now or build them. But I think I think the next couple of months and years we're going to see a lot more cases. So I think it's always going to be here to stay. But I wish we had a statute kind of define what it is for companies who are all trying to hopefully do the right thing and not be caught up in something because the judge or a prosecutor is really ambitious and trying to make their career by expanding the law a bit. So I don't, I don't like those elements about it. I wish we just had a statute defining what it is. Yeah. I mean, look, uh, for you, have you ever thought about getting back into investing? I haven't as much. Um, so I can't have any actually brokerage accounts or anything personally. Um, my wife wow. has a cash account, just an in indexes. So, but what I'm able to do now actually is so I've just been approved by uh, like the Small Business Administration for financing to buy a small business, and you can borrow up to five million dollars at the SBA to buy like a small blue collar business. So I'm actually looking at doing that as another business I can own because I'm not sure speaking it goes ups and it goes up and down with COVID and all that. Like, um, hopefully I have a long career with the speaking, but it's all I'm all in on speaking. So for investment, I could actually now buy a small you know plumbing company or something and finance it by the SBA. How do you get an SBA loan like that? Do you have to put up money yourself? Yeah. So basically, it's eighty percent SBA. 10% is usually a seller note. Like the seller will give you a note and then 10% down payment up to a $5 million loan. Yeah. So that's great. What kind of business do you think you might want to buy? Um, so right now I'm looking at um, like blue collar businesses, like every, you know, there's 10,000 people turning 65 every day, like a pest control business with great recurring revenue or a pool cleaning business with the recurring maintenance revenue and then have somebody run it as a general manager. Jay, who, what's the name of the guy we spoke to who buys small businesses and, and helps other people identify good small businesses to buy? Carl Allen. Carl Allen. C-A-R-L-A-L-L-E-N. Yeah, we'll yes. send you, Jay, can you send Tom the, the links to some of the episodes or some of Carl's stuff? Oh, yeah, for sure. This guy, um, he's bought and sold like hundreds of businesses and he's helped other people do it and, and he's very successful at it. Like, how do you know when when's a good value? How do you, how do, you do it where the seller puts up as much as possible? Uh, and he has all the statistics like, you know, 80% of businesses just simply shut down because they never get sold even though they were good businesses, cash flow generating businesses, because I would definitely yeah. check that, that out. He's very smart at this and he got me excited about buying laundromats or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah there's uh, laundromats and restaurants. Will, yeah. yeah. Restaurants. I don't know because could be problematic. Pest control to me, it's like 98% recurring. Like most houses just pay a fee. Like it should be recession proof. Yeah. Like mosquitoes don't go away if we're in a recession. So, like, the only thing yeah. I worry about pest control is if it's a small business, then if the guy, retires, your business is out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I want at least half million EBITDA. Most of these businesses are like, tr are priced at like two and a half times, three times EBITDA. So actually to yeah. finance it, it's very attractive. Whereas the FBA businesses have been built up by the aggregators the last few years, like everybody got into buying Amazon businesses. So those multiples are higher. So yeah. And you could look for businesses that don't do a lot of SEO, for instance, and you could yep. start dominating on SEO. There's various right. ways you could improve the, the, exactly. Income. Can you buy a dot-com business or it has to be blue collar? No, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm looking at dot-coms too. Cause for me, I think it might be even, easier to have a digital business or an, F an FBA business, like an Amazon business, where if I'm traveling somewhere for speaking, I could run that or, you know, have VAs uh, running that. But I'm, I'm trying to find something um, where I can, I can have another source of cash flow, you know, to have the speaking and something else. I would check out empireflippers.com mm -hmm. uh, and flippa.com. Like I get an email every day from empireflippers.com. And like the other day, for instance, I got, uh, it was all about Amazon, what they call KDP businesses. So some guy will write a hundred books about self-improvement you know, he'll outsource it, the, the writing, but maybe he'll outline it, whatever. And so they have a hundred books. 
you know, it's the 80, 20 rule, 20% of the books generate 80% of the revenues, but they're generating after a hundred books, they might be generating 10,000 a month in income and they built it up and now they can sell it for six times annual income and, you know, some small multiple, but there are funds going, building out there, which, um, are buying, let's say a hundred of these businesses mm -hmm. combining together. And now you have some back-end synergy, synergy so you can increase the income and the size increases the multiple. So instead of buying a uh, hundred businesses for six times earnings, you now can sell one business for nine times earnings and you've increased the overall earnings. So it's like a classic roll-up structure. And you know, those types of things are very interesting. So empireflippers.com and flippa.com. Okay. Yeah. But well, look, Tom, Good luck. Thank you for sharing your story. It's an intense story. I'm glad you were able to share it. And it, it, you, you inspiringly came through on the other side. And if you ever need any help with anything, or you want to come back on the podcast and talk about your pest control business, you're, you're more than welcome to come back on anytime. Thanks so much for having me on, James. It's great. Tom, I appreciate it. Thanks.